This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. For the past two centuries, the West has been plundering the treasures of the ancient world to fill its great museums. But in recent years, the countries where ancient civilizations originated have begun to push back, taking museums to court, prosecuting curators, and threatening to force the return of these priceless objects. In her new book, Loot, the Battle Over the Stolen Treasures of the Ancient World, our guest today, Sharon Waxman, takes a journey across four continents to the heart of the conflict over who should own the great works of ancient art. Waxman was a Hollywood correspondent for the New York Times until January of 2008. Before joining the Times, she was a Los Angeles correspondent for the Washington Post. Sharon Waxman, welcome to Weekly Signals. Hi, thanks for having me. How are you doing today? Oh, great, great. Good. good. Are you up in, uh, are you in Santa Monica? I am. Very good. And how long have you been there? You've been in Los Angeles for a while now, right? Oh, yeah, like 13 years, I guess. Um, I sort of uh, was a foreign correspondent and bopped all over Europe and then and before that the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I just ended up in Santa Monica and haven't moved for a <laughs> long time. <laughs> now, now, an entertainment reporter, but also in the Middle East, is that where your interest in antiquities was developed? Well, I think that I became interested in antiquities and archaeology really as a kid and probably from going to museums. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, you know, the, of course, living in the Middle East, you can't help but come across some of the amazing monuments that, that are part of the, the landscape there, especially mm-hmm. in Egypt. And I have, a, I have a very close relationship with Egypt. I, I studied there. I studied Arabic there and kind of fell in love with Pharaonic Egypt, as so many people have over the centuries. Uh-huh. Now, now, when did looting begin? I mean, have, we always, has civiliza- have other civilizations always looted other civilizations, or was there a, a, a spark or a peak at some point in time, and then it uh, took off? Yeah, um, looting has been going on for as long as human beings have been making objects worth having <laughs> by okay. other people. So it really goes back, you know, pretty much to the beginning of recorded history, and it it was not considered something that was out of the norm for a very long time. I mean, the, to the victor goes the spoils was considered the norm and was something that was even celebrated and was considered part of the ritual of a conquering army to take the things that they that they wanted. It was really only in the beginning of the 19th century that the notion of a different, uh, that plunder took on a different kind of notion. Mm. I mean, for example, you have paintings of Napoleon, uh, of his armies carting off uh, the Italian treasures from from his campaigns in northern Italy, and the, so that that was something that was celebrated as part of his victories as this conquering general. But ultimately, th- those pieces went back to Italy in the negotiations over the peace treaty. Uh, what what I'm talking about is something that came out of the age of empire, and it also has to do with the beginning of museums, which is a really different um, stage in in our civilization. Uh-huh. Essentially. 
museums, because when I did this book, I just sort of, I hadn't really ever thought about when did museums start and where did they come from? Well, it turns out that they're about 250 years old, and they came from, both from the notion of the Enlightenment, this idea of the ideals of human progress, that's sort of what the Enlightenment was all about, right, that we all, uh, that human progress is a, is something that moves forward and that a human achievement can move forward, and then museums were kind of built to enshrine those ideas and to, to put on display the, the, the symbols and the examples of human achievement. But they were also very much a part of empire and part of the French and the British and the Germans um, conquering the world and putting the, the symbols of past civilizations in these great big halls where people could come and look at them and marvel at past civilizations while understanding that, oh, it's the French who now control them. They are now the masters of the world or the British. And so as they conquered colonies in, in um, places like Egypt or, or not even colonies, but they would just, their armies would go through, um, they started taking stuff. So Napoleon kind of kicked it off when he invaded Egypt in 1799, and this was the beginning both of modern archaeology and Egyptology today. And his his, his uh, armies invaded and conquered, but he also brought with him these scientists called savants who discovered ancient Egypt, and they and they began studying and drawing and sent this, uh, these beautiful things that Europe had not seen in centuries and sent it back to Europe, and this set off this wave of people who came to, to Egypt and just started taking stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, so yeah. it, it does, uh, so this trend really, without getting too, uh, maybe too historic here, but the, this, does tra- this does sort of trend along the same lines as colonialism, right? I mean, this was, this was a one-way street. It wasn't as if the people of Egypt were getting artifacts from uh, ancient French uh, exactly. It's funny. There's a there's a, a, an amazing history of the world by J.M. Roberts that I quote in the introduction to the book, which talks about the extraordinary uh, pace and and scale of Europe taking over the world in the age of colonization, in the age of empire, in which he talks about Europe went out to the world. The world did not come to Europe. So it was this extraordinarily, uh, you know, culturally this huge taking over of so much um, land and and then the piece of resources as we know but also um, the the symbols of ancient civilizations. So, yes, absolutely. Now, now one of the the more striking acts of looting, or or less, I guess it's government-sanctioned looting when it went over to Napoleon. It was more just kind of (laughs) part of pillaging before, I guess. Well, yeah. I, if you don't mind, I, 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 I wanted to just make one other point of it. When you, when, when, uh, you brought up the idea that this, is the, this has to do with colonization, okay. what's going on today? Because the book is not only a look at history at how looting began, but it's a discussion of what's going on today when you have all of these countries that are demanding pieces back Absolutely. from countries that took them either 200 years ago or in the past 30 or 40 years. So what you're talking about in terms of the age of colonization, what was considered okay to do a couple of hundred years ago, this is the payback time. Now you have countries that are are in a sort of a post-post-colonial world, and they want to stand up and claim their cultural identities for themselves. And part of doing that is standing up to former colonizers and saying, you took these things without permission, you took these things when we were not independent. 
yes, you've taken good care of them. Yes, lots of people are able to look at them and admire them in your museums, but their hours give them back. And that is a, it, it is a lot about kind of settling the scores of yeah. the history of the past 200 years. It's sort of redress here is what we're talking about. But yeah. uh, but is is there any kind of a trend in, in, in the direction of, as I was you know, facetiously talking about sort of in both ways. Do do these uh, do these countries of uh, the ancient world, as we'll call it for for the lack of a better way to put it, uh, are they are they getting anything from the Europeans that you that they can put in their museums? Is there does this does this travel in both directions at all? In terms of, of whether the, they borrow from well, they, Western yeah, museums, yeah, whether or not what do do countries and um, I'm going to assume that countries like Egypt and Iraq and other places of the Middle East do they get things from their, their no? The, I mean, they, they collect interest. Is that what you're saying? No, do they collect, <laughs> no, do they collect uh, artifacts from ancient no. or from the early civilizations in Europe? I mean, is in it, Europe, uh, well, does Europe doesn't have? really have ancient civilizations. Well, I mean, it, well, was, you yeah, could say Greek, as, yeah. Greek and Roman, yeah. Yeah. but of course. Egypt has plenty of Greek and Roman antiquities on its own. I mean, Egypt was one of the is one of the oldest places on Earth in terms of human civilization. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but basically, no. They <laughs> those countries that are, are very rich in artifacts that in in their own country and monuments. Okay. And part of the point of museum officials like Jim Cuno, who's just written a book, who is the who is the head of the Chicago Art Institute, who is critical of source countries that want stuff back. His point is that's exa- that they only are interested in objects that serve their own kind of national stories, their own cultural nationalism. And, mm-hmm. that, and that's, that's his argument as to why uh, stuff shouldn't go back from Western museums, because his point is these are universal museums. They bring all these pieces together. They serve a broader view of the world, a broad-minded view of the world. They're not about our nationalism. They they put all these civilizations side by side and let you look at them and compare and learn, whereas source countries are just serving their own national myths and, and using it to build their own national stories. That's his point. Uh, we're speaking with uh, Sharon Waxman. The book is Loot. The battle over stolen treasures of the ancient world. I wanted to ask a question about when they get, when they do get this uh, these artifacts back. Do we have uh, is there a long enough time frame that we can judge how they treat the 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 things that they get back? That in general terms, I'm sure yeah. there's better uh, countries that are better than others, but. Yeah, well, that's really one of the points of the book. It was to sort of examine the arguments, but not from a just a an armchair point of view. But I'm a reporter, and I went to all of these places, and I and I not only interviewed the directors of four of the great museums, the Louvre and the British Museum and the Metropolitan in New York and the Getty here in Los Angeles, but I went to the source countries themselves to see how they care for what they have. Do they do they have good museums that where they take care of things? Are the museums full of people who are actually interested in them. How, how do they uh, care for the archaeological sites that they have? And what I found was a really mixed bag. I mean, some countries, uh, in some countries, the museums, in many of the countries, actually, that I went to the museums, are really empty. They, ha- they struggle to take care of the monuments and the sites that they have because they, don't, they have so much and they don't have the resources or it's not a priority of the government. Uh, it's not the case, let's say, for the Parthenon in Greece. And, of course, 
many of your listeners probably know that Greece has been asking for the return of half of the Parthenon sculptures that have been at the British Museum for about 200 years, called the Elgin Marvels. They've now built this beautiful state-of-the-art museum at the base of the Acropolis, where they have on the top floor this glass-enclosed space, which is very, very beautiful. They've assembled the half of the sculptures that they have, and you can see, because it has to be indoors because it's because of pollution and stuff, it's not safe to keep it outside anymore because the marble's kind of fragile. So, But you can still see the Parthenon from the top floor mm. of that new museum. But then I also, one of the other really interesting stories that I got to um, explore in the book is a story that's completely unknown in this country, which is what happened to um, uh, these this cache of gold and silver treasures from an ancient civilization that belonged to King Croesus. If you ever heard of, oh, he was as rich as Croesus. Mm-hmm. That was a, that's an actual civilization, which I never knew before I did the book, and it's the Lydian civilization. And um, the Met actually uh, bought these illegally smuggled treasures in the 1960s, and Turkey sued the Met in the 1980s. And in the 1990s, the Met gave it back. And in 2006, the masterpiece of that Horde, the Lydian Horde, was stolen from this one-room museum in Turkey where it was being kept and not being kept well. So that's a whole tragedy. That whole story is like a crazy yarn because the director of the museum is in jail, and I went to the jail, and so, you know. Is he in jail on account of that? Yeah, yeah, for having stolen. Yeah, he replaced it with a counterfeit. Oh, well, so, geez. so uh, there, and uh, that's another whole part of this that I want to get to uh, eventually. So, so you're, you, in your travels around the world, as you went to these different places, you saw a very mixed, uh, mixed yeah. bag of who's taking care of it and who's not. Is there a real pressure on the part of these, the, some of these countries that have these ancient uh, artifacts, that the amount of money that would be paid for them is so high that the pressure to uh, either uh, legally or through a black market uh, um, arrangement to, uh, to the, the temptation there to just sell these things to the highest bidder? Yeah, of course. Not the government itself, no. but corrupt people. <laughs> you yeah. know, sort of, um, there are smugglers. Yeah, I mean, who do you think are the people that are selling um, these pieces to museums that countries now want back or to private donors. Well, it's people in those countries of origin who are... There, a lot of times in Turkey, there's a whole mafia that's built around smuggling looted antiquities. There's tons of stuff right now because it's pretty much been clamped down on because of these restitution battles. Western museums are hardly... Um, and even private donors, it's been cut way down in the West in terms of what people will acquire because they're so nervous about provenance. But places like Dubai and Abu Dhabi, um, where there's tons of money and very little, you know, people don't really pay attention to things like provenance there. There's tons of stuff that's flowing in that direction, especially from Iraq today. There's just rampant smuggling and looting going on in in Iraq. And they just, you know, every day I'll see a headline that says, you know, uh, custom officials confiscated in Dubai, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So, yes, that, that, that is the temptation, and that had been the case, for example, in Egypt, that stuff would go missing from the storage. They call, they're called storage magazines. They can't put everything on display, and they don't have it. The stuff is so vast that it's not very well cataloged. And, you know, you'll still see this arrest here and there. Uh, the head of archaeology in Egypt, Zahi Awas, who's a major character in this book, has tried to clamp down on um, corruption in the antiquity service, and I think he's done as good a job as he can, but, you know, you can't ever cut it down off completely. Yeah. 
Yeah. We're speaking, <clears throat> once again, we're speaking with Sharon Waxman. The book is Loot, The Battle Over Stolen Treasures in the Ancient World. Um, have we done a, I mean, you just alluded to it, doesn't, doesn't sound as if we've done uh, an all-encompassing job of cataloging what is out there. Uh, is, is it a knowable ent uh, enterprise to know all of the antiquities that, that uh, would be considered such in the ancient world? And, and how are we doing in terms of cataloging what's, what's out there? Well, it's not, it's not a comprehensive effort because it's every museum catalogs what it has. Every country is meant to catalog what it has. And then there are private donors, and there's so much in private hands, that, and we do not know what is, what is in private hands, of course, unless it's, unless it's loaned to a museum and published in a catalog. So, the, you know, I, I don't think we ever can know for certain how much is still beneath the ground. Mm -hmm. But in terms of what is above ground, I th you know, I would guess that a lot of that is catalogued, but a l but particular, let's say a country like Egypt, you'll you'll I mean, if you read the book, you'll see there's just there's a little bit of a Keystone Cops um, aspect to the the cataloging system, uh, not a little bit, a lot of it, and this is again one of the things that that Zahi Hawass is trying to do is to kind of rationalize all this and may, and unify it, but that's just you know one country. I was wondering about. How do you go about getting your antiquities back legally? If if I'm, I'm if I'm Egypt and they have something at the Getty, what's the process? Um, because there's, what what court do I go to? Who do I complain well, to? Well, do you do it cordially at first, and then <coughs> yeah. Well, I assume that's so. That's exactly but, yeah. right. Well, that's exactly what's happened. Is it's ended up in this very antagonistic and very um, painful process. Well, what the Italians did is they t used the sledgehammer approach, which was they put a curator from the Getty on trial for criminal charges of fraud and theft. And that person, her name is Marion True, who's right. also one of the big stories I tell in the book, right. is still on trial. And Italy did this for the purpose of twisting the Getty's arm to have leverage to get the antiquities back that they wanted, exactly because of what you say, that they started out with polite letters and they found that that didn't go anywhere and the Getty didn't respond or said, oh, I, I, we don't agree with your point of view or whatever they said. And Marion True, who is, it was a career curator, spent 24 years building the antiquities collection at the Getty Museum, Harvard-educated, very well-liked, um, ended up being the scapegoat for the Italian's um, campaign to get pieces back, and her reputation is ruined, her career is over, she lives in France, you know, mm. according to people I know, she's not well, but Getty kind of cut her off like a, as I say in the book, like a gangrene limb, because they, mm. you know, if you ask them about her, oh, we don't know, but she did all of this, you know, it bears remembering not to kind of line her pockets or buy herself, um, you know, Manola Blahniks, but to build the collection under the norms of of acquisition that was, you know, that was common. So how, she, how is it that Marine True was held responsible? I, I really don't understand. She's a curator, but she has she no by the ownership of these items. Would, yeah. Wouldn't uh, Italy go after the the uh, entity that that owns what it is that uh, they're after? That's a very good question. Yep. <laughs> okay. A lot of people. <laughs> I ask it a lot, a lot of times to a lot of people in the writing of the book, mm -hmm. and. Um, 
Was it just that she was the most legally vulnerable of the of the outfit? And basically, they, yeah, mm-hmm. basically, she was I mean, unprotected, I, really, and, and that's what she. Um, well, she's you know, it's 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 a complicated question. There's a, there's a bit of cloak and dagger there. I've asked that question to the Italian prosecutors. I've asked that of the director of the museum at the time, John Walsh. She declined to be interviewed for the book. Pretty much everybody I interviewed, pretty much everybody in all uh, involved in all of these different conflicts. But there were a few people who didn't give me interviews. He was one of them, and Marion True was another. Um, but uh, and I and I suspect he didn't want to ha- have to answer that question because he was her superior in the acquisition process, and the board of trustees were the ones who had to approve every acquisition. Well, so. well, in the history of getting these antiquities back to the origin, the, uh, the country of origin, was she was this one of the first big? Uh, cases to come along was she was she sort of mm-hmm. made an example of is that part that's of that's exactly right yeah. that's now, exactly right and so. was this tried in the US no oh, okay. because in the US you would have all kinds of protections okay. she didn't break any US laws she um, she broke laws in Italy oh. and um, was she you know was she convicted? She's still she, yeah. no. She she's. It's kind of like a. I, I would say I'd call it Chinese water torture, but we should probably call it like Italian legal torture. Okay. All of these uh, in many of these countries, including Greece, including Turkey, they only meet uh, once a month. The trials, mm-hmm. and so it's a, an excruciatingly slow process. They have dropped half the charges against her when the Getty finally caved in August of 2007, and they agreed to give back 40 pieces, and they immediately dropped half the charges. They still have uh, other charges, though, pending against her, and I don't know if it's because they feel like they need to show something for it for all these for a couple of yeah. years of prosecution. Yeah. But she, um, as I reveal in the book, um, well, the reason why she can't, she can't plead guilty, and you know the reasons why are in the book. But okay. basically, there she's caught between a rock and a hard place. Right. Right. Now, have other countries followed this precedent to get their? They're they're looking to Egypt is looking to pass a law to uh, prosecute similarly. And so that's why I think it's really important that we kind of consider this subject, talk about it, air it, because we're going down a really antagonistic path, which to me it kind of goes, flies in the face of what culture in museums is all about, which is supposed to be about exchange (laughs) and sharing and learning from one another. And instead we're mired in lawsuits and threats and people's getting their reputations ruined and pieces going missing, and that doesn't serve anyone. It doesn't serve the source countries. It doesn't serve the, the museum going public. It doesn't serve the artifacts. It doesn't serve anyone. Yeah. Uh, and and, if, and lest you think uh, people think that this doesn't have consequences, I'm going to change the subject slightly, and if this is beyond your area of expertise, uh, please say so. But mm-hmm. when, we, uh, when the United States invaded Iraq, um, yeah. one of the most telling, uh, one of the most consequential events on the early part of our invasion of Iraq and our conquest of Baghdad was the Iraqi people witnessing the looting of their national tre- uh, national treasures and the impact was significant it really dis- it really destroyed so much of the credibility that the United States might have had and it definitely has consequences beyond just going to a museum and looking at these pieces I, I, I absolutely yeah. agree. It, it, the fact that we uh, allowed our soldiers to stand by, yeah. um, you know, with their guns as looters went in and out of the museum. Well, and protect the Ministry of Oil in the process of, of mm-hmm. watch and while watching this happen. Yeah. Is... Well, I think that's one of many things that we'll have to live down mm-hmm. <clears throat> regarding the Iraq War. But that was certainly very shameful. And, we cert- and you know, all the documents that have come out about the war show that 
we knew about the museum, that there was discussion and a pleas from cultural authorities that the museum be protected, and not quite sure why it wasn't. Well, this is a fascinating subject, and uh, unfortunately we've run out of time. Um, I have one quick question that's a little off-subject. Is there going to mm. be a uh, Screen Actors Guild uh, strike? <laughs> strike? <laughs> a little off subject. Well, I know well, that that's Sharon, okay because he knows listeners. I have that hat. I can put that yeah, hat on. Yeah, Sharon too. is a, a writer who's written extensively <laughs> about the Screen Actors Guild or about Hollywood. <laughs> Are we yeah. going to have a Screen Actors Guild strike? I think it's entirely possible. I mean, the talk in Hollywood is that there's go- there's, that there's a strike. Crazy as that may seem. It, it really does seem crazy to me and to most people I talk to, but they're going to have a strike authorization vote, which means a vote to for the guild members to decide whether they should have a strike. Okay. And it seems like they're backing themselves into that. I don't know what will be accomplished, but it, it will not be good. Yeah. Well, well, I want to thank you again for coming here to Weekly Signals. The book is Loot, uh, the Battle Over the Stolen Treasures of the Ancient World. Sharon Waxman, thank you. Thank you, and I hope your uh, listeners will visit my blog sometime at Waxword so they can keep up with Hollywood and the latest All Hollywood right. antiquities. <laughs> All right. Thank, Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you much. so much. Right. Thank okay, you. bye. Bye-bye. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings, and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.